Our reading today is very, very brief. It's Zephaniah 3, 14 to 17. And um, Tim, if you could just leave that there rather than going on to the sermon, because we'll be, we'll just go forward and back. You'll probably notice as I read through this that I've made a couple of small alterations. The New King James translation, New King James has a footnote. Um, You shall fear disaster no more. New King James has you shall see disaster no no more. But um, that depends on which manuscript. Thank you, Tim. You read and... The other one is the second last line there. He will quiet quiet you or himself in his love. The, um, the idea of quiet and the idea of love are there, but it's not absolutely clear. So um, I've elected to go with the idea of the Lord being quiet in his love rather than quieting his people in his love. Let's read together. Sing, and sorry, I've left out the ofs. Sing, O daughter Zion. Sing, O daughter Jerusalem. Um, Again, seems to fit better. So, sing, O daughter Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall fear disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear. Zion, let not your, heart, your hands be weak. The Lord your God in your midst, the Mighty One, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet himself in his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Songs for Daughters Day. You might be able to see a few clues in there as to why I've, in, why I've titled it uh, this way. Let's just pray before we consider this portion of God's word. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we stand in awe to think that you, yourself, would sing over us in joy, but we Acknowledge that this is of your grace, that we who are unlovely, we in whom there is nothing delightful of ourselves, are the objects of your mercy, of your saving, redeeming, and renewing love. And we we pray that you would help us to rejoice in this great work that you have accomplished through your Son, our Lord Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Some of you may recall that I preached for Mother's Day last year. On that occasion, I was standing on the floor. I think, Jack, you had the camera running and we were recording it so that people could watch it the following day on Zoom. And 
And you're probably all aware by now that if you let Peter Wan into the pulpit, you're going to get something a bit out of left field. So last year we had a quick look at the history of Mother's, our modern observation of Mother's Day. We remembered that originally it was a day when people went back to their mother church back in the Middle Ages. And then it became a national holiday under President Woodrow Wilson. Then it got really commercialised to the extent that the lady who wanted it set up was going to have a petition to to pull it out of the calendar because it was it had got so commercialised. And we looked last year at four examples in scripture of how the prayers and the example and the encouragement and the care of a faithful mother had a big impact in the life of a child. One of those examples we made an assumption that the widow in Jesus' parable, the widow who went to the unjust judge and pleaded for justice, was probably a widow with children, and that was the the, um, concern she had. And the prayer that she was praying for justice would have benefited her children. And in that context, Jesus was telling that parable to challenge his disciples. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find people genuinely praying and the context of that challenge was uh, the disciples wondering about the day the day among the days when God would would act and I challenged us to try to broaden our idea of Mother's Day I said yep Mother's Day it's important to remember and to be grateful for having a mother For some of us, we can be grateful for the experience of being a mother. But then the challenge was, can we stretch our understanding of being a mother to the breadth that the Bible would challenge us to understand that? Because the Apostle Paul spoke of himself when writing to the Thessalonians of his conduct among them and how he was among them, and he cared for them like a nursing mother cares for his children. I said, look, if the Apostle Paul isn't ashamed to use the metaphor of motherhood to describe his own actions amongst fellow Christians, well, I don't think we can be um, reluctant to do that. So I challenge all of us to think, how can we take the example of godly mothers, the prayers, the example, the loving care that they give, And live that out in our own lives. How can we, if the Apostle Paul could be a mother to the Thessalonian Christians, how can we be mothers to fellow fellow Christians, to those around us? So I said, okay, let's stretch stretch our thoughts. Well, of course, all mothers were daughters once. And you'll see I've highlighted it in pale blue and underlined it. Our portion today in Zephaniah addresses the city of Jerusalem set on the hill, the mountain of Zion, as a daughter. So God the Father is speaking to his people using the image of their being a daughter. So in that sense, if we're part of the people of God... God addresses us as daughters. 
Okay, so men in the congregation. Okay, it's not a big challenge because we're, we're part of the bride of Christ, so we should be used to it. <clears throat> okay, if we're the bride of Christ, we're also the daughters of God. Um, let's stretch our understanding of what it is to be a daughter and think, okay, if we are part of the family of God, if we can call God our Father, how does he speak to us? What does he tell us about himself and his, his thoughts about us, his relationship with us, as we consider this portion. Now, of course, Zephaniah is one of the so-called minor prophets. That just means he's one of the prophets whose books are smaller than the prophets who wrote big books. And Kathy and I have been reading through um, the minor prophets in our own readings, and Zephaniah very much engages in the theme of the day of the Lord. For most of his book, he challenges God's people to realise that the day of the Lord, that is the occasion on which the covenant God goes into action in the lives of his people and the world around them, the, the day, the occasion when he shows his power and shows what he's about, as a sovereign God, first of all, that day is a day of judgment. It's a day of rebuke. It's a day of destruction. The day of the Lord is a serious, awesome day. But then, in the later part of the book, he then also says that the day of the Lord is a day of comfort. And encouragement. And this beautiful psalm, chapter 3, verses 14 to 17, falls in the middle of that portion of encouragement. It's a, as you can see, a beautifully structured piece of literature. The Holy Spirit gave Zephaniah great skill in putting this together. You can possibly see how I've, I've stepped the various portions in, how the widest portions reflect each other. The next two verses reflect each other. But right in the middle, right at the key central part of the psalm is, in that day it shall be said to Jerusalem. Zephaniah says that the Lord is going to bring chastisement and punishment upon his people, but then there will come a day when he brings restoration and redemption to them. And it's in that day that they'll sing. You'll notice that the psalm starts and ends with singing. The same Hebrew stem is there. In some other portions of scripture, the same word is translated as shout. It's the sort of response that presumably Jack in our children's story had when he walked past the cash converter shop and he saw his his, um, ukulele. Yippee! 
There it is. Maybe I can get it back. A shout for joy. But it's, it's expressed in terms of singing. So who sings? Well, daughter Zion is challenged to sing, to shout, to be glad and to rejoice with all, all of her heart. But who else sings? Isn't it amazing that here the covenant God reveals to his people that he will rejoice over his people with singing. Now, some of you were here when I led this as a devotion for the uh, pre-meeting some weeks ago. And then, I don't know if you picked it up, but Kevin Gladding actually used it as the uh, benediction when he preached after presbytery. So I thought, wow, that's it's a bit like Isaiah 40, isn't it? But anyway, um, we... Um, and we, we said in the group, wouldn't it be wonderful to hear the song that Jehovah sings over his people? Wouldn't it be a privilege? But it's spoken of in Revelation, isn't it? The song of the Lamb. The, 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 the saints gathered around the throne are singing a new song. They're singing, singing the song of the Lamb. So you, you, you wonder whether... And I you know, say this reverently, whether we'll have the, the privilege in heaven to be able to sing that same song that Jehovah himself, Yahweh himself, sings as he rejoices over his people. Isn't this a beautiful picture to, to think that we, rebellious, fallen creatures who have no right to have any relationship with our creator, who deserve to be excluded from his presence forever, are rather, because of his mercy in Christ, objects of his delight, of his rejoicing, rejoicing over us with singing. He's not just, oh yeah, that's pretty good. It's, this is just so wonderful, I have to break out in song and sing about it. It's, it's glorious, it's wonderful. To see these my people. That's what's going to happen in that day. So who sings? At the beginning and end of the psalm, it's God's people singing about the, the rescue, the deliverance that God himself has brought for them. At the end of the psalm, it's God himself is singing over the triumph that he's accomplished uh, through his actions. So you see at the the end of those first, first three lines, who sings? Zion sings. Israel sings. Jerusalem sings. Who sings in the last three lines? He. He will rejoice. He will quiet himself. He will rejoice over you with singing. So it begins and ends with singing. But when we look at the second and the second last lines, there's a skillful contrast. They're shouting and they're silent. Shout, O Israel. Sometimes when something joyful and wonderful happens, Jack sees his ukulele, yippee, you just break out with a shout. But sometimes in a loving relationship, and I'll, you know, I'll, you know, whether it's a parent with a child, whether it's a 
a beloved with a spouse. Sometimes we come into the presence of the person with whom we share a loving relationship and words fail us. We just, we can't express the love we have and we're just, words are taken away and we just stand in silent love just contemplating the loving relationship we have. There's another possible meaning for this. Some have interpreted the quietness of God in his love as not speaking condemnation, of withholding a condemning word. Instead of speaking condemnation, he doesn't speak at all. Perhaps both are, are implied. But there's a, a skillful, poetic contrast between the shouts of Israel and the silence of the Lord. But then you see the third and the third last lines. There's rejoicing and gladness. Daughter Jerusalem, be glad. Rejoice with all your heart. The Lord himself will, re will rejoice over his people with gladness. When's this going to happen? In that day. The day that the covenant God demonstrates his power, shows his active involvement in a special way in the lives of his people. Today is the Lord's day. In a sense, every week we commemorate the day of the Lord because the day when God raised Jesus from the dead, he showed his power. Every, every week on the Lord's Day, we remember that. But we also look forward to that day when God will right all wrongs, when Jesus will return and return as judge. The Apostle Paul said to those philosophers in Athens, God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man. And he's given proof of this by raising him from the dead. We remember that on this day. <clears throat> but what particular actions is it that the Lord's people are singing about and that the Lord himself is singing about? The Lord, and of course I continually remind us, when we see Lord in capitals like that, it's the covenant name of God, sometimes written down as Jehovah, probably pronounced in Hebrew as Yahweh. The covenant God himself has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. In the fourth last verse, the mighty one will save He's a mighty warrior who rescues his people. He's one who takes away their judgments and casts out their enemies. What's of particular comfort in a time when God's people are tempted to fear, to sorrow? It's the fact that God is in their midst. And beautifully reflected in this brief psalm is a reminder to God's people. The King of Israel, Jehovah, 
is in your midst. Then again, Jehovah, your God, in your midst, the mighty one, will save. Even when we feel that things around us are turning into disaster, there's a worldwide pandemic, as Tim was sharing with us this morning, we're hearing of work colleagues in India catching coronavirus and dying. When a beloved member of our family has a life-altering injury, as Reuben has sustained, our natural tendency would be to sorrow and sadness and to fear, but rather because we can lay hold of the truth that the covenant God is in the midst of his people. He's not far off, distant, unreachable, unknowable. He's in our midst. And because of that truth, we can follow that exhortation. You shall fear disaster no more. Do not fear Zion. Let not your hands be weak. Fear is something that we no longer need to fear. It's interesting, the, the verse before, verse 13, the prophet promises them, they shall feed their flocks and lie down and no one shall make them afraid. So he's picked up that theme and expressed it beautifully in his psalm. So as I said, when is all this going to be evident? It's going to be in that day, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord in some contexts and for some people is a day, a fearful day, a fearful day of judgment. But for those who are trusting in the covenant God, it is a day when it will be said, do not fear. Do not let your hands be weak. You shall fear disaster no more. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. The Lord God in your midst, the Mighty One will save. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter Jerusalem. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Shout, O Israel. He will quiet himself in his love. Sing, O daughter Zion. He will rejoice over you with singing. I pray that that gives us cause to sing songs, to consider this as well as Mother's Day, to be Daughter's Day. We can all think of ourselves as daughters of the covenant God, part of God's family. He addresses us so lovingly. He calls us to sing. He assures us that he will sing. I, um, I shared Matthew Henry's um, comment on this portion with the um, prayer meeting group. I'd love to do it again. So heartwarming the way that um, Matthew Henry puts things. He says, the way Zephaniah expresses this 
is very lively and affecting. The conversion of sinners and the consolation of saints are the joy of angels, for they are the joy of God himself. The church should be the joy of the whole earth, as Psalm 48.2 says, for it is the joy of the whole heaven. Oh, the condescensions of divine grace. I love this sentence. The great God not only loves his saints, but he loves to love them. Is pleased that he has pitched upon these objects of his love. He will joy over them with singing. The Lord takes pleasure in those that fear him, and in them Jesus Christ will shortly be glorified and admired. Amen. Well, let's, uh, let's conclude our worship singing a song from the praise hymnal number 962. It's a setting, again, of a, a song from the time of the Reformation, a song which speaks of the day of judgment, that awesome day of God. And the, we sing, along with the, the hymn writer, of what an awesome day that will be. Great God, what do I see and hear? The end of things created. Behold, the judge of all appear on clouds of glory seated. Thanks, Kevin.